Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why spend your money on that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know you shall run to you uh, shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, that he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy, and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Let's pray. Father, as we read last week, we recognize that we are all like grass and fade away. But not only does your word endure forever, it is also one that accomplishes your purpose. It is a powerful and effective word. And so I ask that you would accomplish your gracious purposes in us this morning. Awaken those who are asleep. Revive us. Restore us as Christ is displayed before us as the one in whom all of these promises are yes and amen. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes you're not always excited about an invitation. We got one of those invitations recently. Uh, the whole family and I were invited to a potluck dinner. There's this uh, group, this uh, philanthropic group that um, pays for a lot of Eli's dental work uh, because he was born with a cleft palate. And so you know, we'd met with one of the gentlemen and, and his wife and talked with them. Well, he called and said that they wanted us to join them for this meal on Thursday night. 
Thursday. Men's Bible study night. Mm. Do I really want to go to this thing? It didn't sound all that appealing. It did not sound all that exciting. And I probably, in talking with Amy, sounded an awful lot like those people in Matthew 22 who were trying to find reasons not to go to the wedding of the prince. That's what we do. There are times when we have received invitations and we do not recognize that which awaits us, that we find many what we think are really good reasons not to go. Let us not think that with this invitation. The big idea this morning is that Jesus is a feast of grace and mercy. I'm going to look at this in three sort of ways that all point to the the graciousness and greatness of God. So uh, hang with me there. First of all, and these will all be sort of done as imperatives, come, taste delightful bounty from a generous God. The context here in uh, Isaiah 55 is this is the last of the servant songs in Isaiah. Okay, And so they're focused on what the Messiah is going to come and do. And they presuppose the exile that Isaiah had already talked about. Uh, the promise of exile that they were going to receive in due time. And so Messiah would come after the exile and restore the fortunes of God's people. And so that's the overall context of this passage that we need to keep in mind as we look at it. Okay, So this is about the plight of future exiles as well as the work of the Messiah on their behalf. And in the midst of this, we see that an invitation is offered. And this invitation is offered to those who lack, to those who are needy. It goes to the one who thirsts, to the one who has no money. And so we see, on the one hand, great need, but we also see, on the other hand, no resources. This person can't just go and buy some bottled water, or buy something to drink at the nearest store. They have nothing to use to meet their need. An invitation that goes out. An invitation that continues to go out. For we see this reflected in Jesus' words in Revelation 22 where he says, the bride and the spirit say, come, and let the one who who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, again, come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. And so we see a reflection in Revelation 22 of what's going on right here in Isaiah 55. What's being offered? Well, initially what's being offered are the basics of life. Water, or waters. Wine, milk, or cheese. That word could be translated either way. I'm not so wild about milk, but boy, I love cheese. And bread, the basics of life. But they're offered again, not as sort of some silly taunt of, wouldn't it be great to buy this? 
but it's offered freely. Come, purchase this, but there is no price. And so in a sense, there's an exchange that takes place, but it's not a monetary exchange that is going to take place. And so this is a picture, even here, of unearned favor, grace. This is a gracious offer that is given, not a commercial offer by someone who just wants your money. What this does in part is expose our futile quest for life from other sources, for we see here that he says to them, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not which does not satisfy. And so the problem here is not that they're lazy people. They're spending themselves. They're exercising themselves to some degree, but they're spending themselves for the wrong thing. For something that does not accomplish the ultimate purpose for their lives that God has given them. This is why in Deuteronomy 8, God says the following, and Jesus will also repeat this in Matthew 4 when he's being tempted. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the idea that we see here in Isaiah, this idea of bread that will not satisfy, is the notion that literal bread, while it sustains earthly life, physical life, cannot ultimately satisfy because we are not just physical creatures, we are also spiritual creatures. And so something else is needed. And of course, in Deuteronomy it talks that we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, which Jesus, of course, affirms. This does not mean, of course, that earthly things are bad, that physical things are bad. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, There's this warning as well as a sense of promise. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, for those of us who aren't familiar with haughtiness, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so Christianity is not about avoiding possessions, but recognizing where they come, enjoying them, but not setting our hopes on them, not thinking that they will provide us with life, but recognizing that they are only to be enjoyed in proper relationship with the one who provides them. That we remember to be grateful for these things that we receive. We're reminded again that they labored for that which does not satisfy, that these temporal things do not work to satisfy our longest, deepest desires. And that doesn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor. There are a lot of dissatisfied rich people. 
I'm not sure which Super Bowl it was. Tom Brady has four victories. He's been to six. But after one of those four victories, he sort of mentioned, is this all there is? Imagine that. I mean, you're paid millions of dollars to play a game. Your wife is a supermodel, one of the most famous supermodels in the world. You've just once again achieved the apex of success within your chosen profession, and still it's not enough. It doesn't satisfy. And now he doesn't know what to do with that, unfortunately. But there's, and there's so many people who are in his shoes the same way. It does not satisfy. The initial satisfaction we experience from that new purchase doesn't last long, does it? Oh, we might be excited when we bring it home and take it out of the box and set it all up. And woo, my kids were excited yesterday, you know, because they got tablets. They got the new fire or something or other, you know. We'll see how long that joy lasts. That excitement, that contentment, that, that contentment lasts. Okay? It can't because there's that reality of the law of diminishing returns. It's like so much of life is like eating Chinese food. You know, you're hungry 30 minutes later. Okay? That's with all food. Maybe not 30 minutes, but think of the greatest meal you ever had, the most stuffed you ever felt. Thanksgiving was not that far away, right? But what happened the next morning? You were hungry. These things cannot satisfy us long term. They're not intended to. And yet people try to live as if God does not exist and as if those fleeting pleasures are the things that matter most. But what we see in God promising here? We see God promising them, encouraging them to eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Interesting that he would say that. I remember one meal. Let's put the context for you. Orlando Union Rescue Mission. I ate a lot of meals at the Orlando Union Rescue Mission. You may be encouraged to know that I was an employee. <laughs> Not a guest. Okay. Although, you know, what they paid me, I could have stayed there. Um, the meals at the rescue mission were not what most people would think of as fine cuisine, and for good reason. But I'm reminded of one meal where someone had a feast, and they had too much. And so here we were, feasting on crab legs. Isn't that nice? God's inviting them not just to the basics of life, but he says, rich food. Of course, obviously in the Old Covenant, he wouldn't have said, come for crab legs. But you get the idea. It's something similar to what we read in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And so everything there speaks of wealth and prosperity. Good stuff. God's not bringing out the cheap stuff for this feast. 
And the feast in Isaiah 25 is what they call an eschatological banquet. It's a banquet on the last day when Jesus returns. But it is freely offered to all at God's expense. It's a picture of God's generosity that He he lays out such a spread. There will be no one who would walk away from this going, if only there was X. No one will be dissatisfied who attends that particular banquet. It will not be like a potluck where you look at it and go, hmm, that might be good. All of this will be good. I'm not talking about our family feasts, by the way. (laughs) Not talking about that. Okay. All right. So we're on the same page. But it's it's sort of like, let's track with me here, because it is a little cloudy in my head. While we have this promise of this eschatological feast, which we'll talk more about on Christmas Eve, there's also a, a point. What happens between now and then? Okay? Is, is we, are we just supposed to think that God is just promising a great spread at the end of time, and that should, that should satisfy us from point A to point B? No. I think he's also using this as a metaphor. That we are invited now, not to a literal feast, okay? But we are invited at something that portrays the gospel blessings. That meal that we were invited to, that potluck, okay? There was a guise, so to speak, in that. They had us there because they wanted to give us a gift. And we didn't know that. Okay, If we had just gone with my sinful inclination (laughs) to come up with excuses not to be there, we may not have gotten the gift, Okay, which was a very important gift because I said, ooh, this helps pay off the new dishwasher I didn't want to buy. I'm excited for this. Okay, It was a cash gift. God offers us this beckoning us to come. so that Not just so that we'll have a meal you know, when Jesus returns, but that we have something substantial right now, even though it's not physical, it's spiritual. Those spiritual blessings we talked about in Ephesians 1 in our, our uh, confession of faith this morning. We see this reflected in John 1, in verse 16, For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And so we should look at this this idea of this rich feast. God is piling grace upon grace upon His people. Not waiting till the end, but now to sustain us to the end. So that's why that quotation in the reflection by John Calvin, I think, is so pertinent to this conversation. For he says, As we are nourished by bread, wine, milk, and water, so in like manner let us know that our souls are fed and supported by the doctrine of the Gospel, the Holy Spirit, and the other gifts of Christ. 
And so this picture of this food is meant to communicate, I think, to us that in the meantime, Christ is sustaining us by the gospel. That justification, the declaration that we are not guilty, but also righteous by the righteousness of Christ, His obedience given to us, that that is free. And we experience it now and are intended to rejoice in it now and it is meant to sustain us now. That our adoption in Christ is free. It cost Him a lot, just like for adopting parents, it costs to adopt children, but it doesn't cost the children anything. They receive of it freely. Okay? We didn't say... Yo, Eli, you got to pony up some cash to come into our family. Right? But then, we're taking a whole new culture. A whole new... I was pondering this last night or this morning. I can't remember when. But, oh, it was this morning, because uh, Equipped to Engage was talking about family histories, and I thought, isn't that marvelous and interesting in a way? What a picture of the gospel in that my kids, okay, they've got a, three of them have a completely new family history. They're brought into our family, and therefore they share in our family history, which hopefully is better than their family history was. I don't know, okay? But they partake in our family history. And so when we come to Christ and we are adopted as God's children, we now partake of that family history and leave behind that little sordid kind of bad, sad tale that we had. That's free. It's meant to sustain us. Okay? No cost to us, though they cost the son his life. And so, viewed this way, the gospel is, is really a banquet of blessing that is generously given by God through the Messiah. So secondly, listen and look to receive life through a faithful Messiah. And so, uh, we've had tasting, now we have hearing, and we have seeing, God, and God is engaging the senses amazingly in this thing, okay? There's an invitation to come, listen diligently. And, and of course, the, the word is in Hebrew is just listen, okay? But the way it is, the, the, the verb tense implies that idea of diligently. So listen diligently, incline your ear, hear. And so there's an idea not just of occasional Listening, not just distracted listening, but intentional, persistent listening, like all parents long for their kids to do. And all kids really don't want to do. Okay? So, lend me your ears, friends, Romans, countrymen. Pay attention. Listen, is what, is what Isaiah is saying. He's putting words into the mouth of the Messiah. Listening here is connected with obedience. Listen and come. In other words, respond to the invitation. Don't just go, oh, that's nice, thank you very much. But listen and obey. Come to this. 
Okay? They were to come and they were to eat of that delightful food. That feasting is further explained. Part of this is all the parallels. and uh, Hebrew poetry is filled with parallels. Okay, So uh, this phrase is explaining the one before it, that kind of thing. Okay, And so this feasting is further explained by the parallel phrase, come to me. Which makes me believe that the Messiah himself is the delightful feast that they were meant to enjoy. Obviously not physically, but spiritually. We were made to delight in Him. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. What's man's chief end? Yeah, that second part. Enjoy Him forever. Delight in Him. Precisely because He is delightful. Okay? Christianity is largely the notion that you are delighted in God. That your greatest delight, that the most important delight for you is God. Doesn't mean that there aren't lesser delights. I, I delight in my wife and my kids and other things. But the primary one is intended to be Him. And if we're not delighting in Him, Something's gone wrong. Either our understanding of Christianity has gone wrong, or our experience of Christianity has gone wrong. And, it's in, and we're, it's, this is a call to get back to the root of Christianity, which is the enjoyment of God Himself. And so, he continues, Hear that your soul may live. In other words, eternal life is on the line by whether or not we listen and respond to this call that is offered. Just like if I hadn't listened to the invitation, I wouldn't have gotten the money. It was free, but I showed up. And so this is a call to find life in listening to the Word and will of the Father. And this call was lived out by Jesus. Think of that for a moment. The, the lady at the well in, in John 4 has, has gone, and the disciples show back up, and, and they're you know thinking about food, and Jesus says to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. So there's a sense in which um, because Jesus has done that, when we do serve, we give, we're granted over and above that which we serve, so to speak. We're treated sort of food. This is what we live for. To love God. Serve God. If we delight in God. If we don't delight in Him, we have no interest, really, ultimately, and serving Him. As I said before, this promise, all of these promises assume an exile. People who were downcast, people who were guilty, people who felt abandoned by God. And that's what makes the next part of this so astounding. 
Remember, they are covenant breakers, which is why they've been dragged off into Babylon. They think they have no place left with God. And he says here, I will make with you an everlasting covenant. God here promised them that he was going to renew the covenant that they had broken. That their exile was not complete and final. It wasn't as though God was just done with them. But that God was going to restore them. And he was going to renew the covenant with them. And that this is a result, he says, of his steadfast, sure love for David. It's not about how good they were. It was about his love for David. And God is faithful to us in the covenant, not just because of David, but because of the greater David. Jesus, the son of David, who fulfills the covenant that God made with David that we see in 2 Samuel 7. Not going to read that right now. Got to press on. And so, this Messiah, this servant of God, this son of David, is meant to be a testimony to God's covenant faithfulness. He is the covenant faithfulness because he is the son who will sit on the throne of David forever to bring blessing to God's people. But he's not just the fulfillment of the covenant to David. He's also the fulfillment of the covenant God made with Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations because here we also see, just as we saw in Isaiah 25, okay, all the nations are coming to that feast. Here we see all these peoples that did not know God are now running to the Messiah because they've decided, they've realized the bulb has gone on in their heads that he is delightful. He's glorious and worthy of my attention. He's glorious, worthy of my love. He's glorious, worthy of my worship. And so these people run to Him. And so we see that for 2,000 years, Gentiles who did not know God have been running to God through Jesus Christ. And we see that Jesus, as we've seen in John's Gospel, particularly looking at the, the high priestly prayer in John 17, He is glorified in order to be the Savior, and He's glorified because He's the Savior, and lifted up, He will draw people to Himself. Is this going to happen? Is this really going to happen? Isaiah answers that for us in verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth, uh, bring forth and sprout. And so just like the rains come, and we see some snow up in the mountains there this morning, okay? Hopefully it'll last more than a day. But that's intended to bring forth fruit from the earth. Okay? As surely as that happens, God's Word does not return to Him empty, but He declares that it accomplishes that which God purposes. 
And so the success of the mission of the Messiah is rooted in the power of God. And so the word that he speaks is not like the words I speak. I can speak all day and not make anything change. But the power of preaching is not in my words, but his word, accompanied by the Spirit. And so behold, the faithfulness of God and the Messiah, the covenant and His powerful Word. Thirdly, lastly, seek the merciful Messiah while there is yet time. Urgency is sort of the key in this text. and We see all the parallelism used to expand on these ideas. Seek the Lord is parallel to call on Him, meaning what does it look like to seek Him? Doesn't mean running. Okay? Where's, it's not where's Waldo trying to find Jesus in the picture or something. It means to call on him to help you. Okay? So seeking is really another way of looking at this idea of calling. Just as our listening is intended to be persistent, so is our seeking and our calling. They're meant to make up much of who we are. Okay? They're to do this precisely because they have not just this promise, but they have the promise. Let's see, this promise is rooted in the initial promise in Deuteronomy 4. But from there, meaning the place where they've been taken into exile, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if... You search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. See how all of that is tied in to Isaiah 55. And so really what's going on here in Isaiah 55 is just a reaffirmation of what we see in Deuteronomy 4. God is going to be faithful to his promise. He's going to keep it. He's going to work in such a way that you will seek Him. It is not of your own effort, but the working of His Spirit. Okay, so seek Him. We see this as well in Psalm 9. And those you know who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Similarly, in Lamentations 3, which was written when everything fell apart for, the, for them, this is uh, Jeremiah's lament about the fall of Jerusalem. The Lord is good to those who wait on Him, to the soul who seeks Him. And so, again, that parallelism, sometimes seeking is waiting. Waiting for God to keep His Word. Now, here's the urgency. Do not delay. When are they supposed to, to seek Him? While He may be found. When are they to call on Him? While He is near. There's sort of an implication that He may not always be near. That if they harden their hearts to the call of His voice, the moment might be lost. Which is why, you know, I think it was Paul. Today is the day of salvation. So don't wait. To seek is also, we see through the parallelism, to forsake his way, meaning, you know, the wicked man's way, 
to forsake the unrighteous man's thoughts. In other words, this is about repentance. Seeking him is repentance. Years and years and years and years and years ago, my parents took me to see it. This is one of those things where I don't know, understand whatsoever. Why my parents would take me at the age of just over 10-ish to see the movie The End. The, uh, the dark Burt Reynolds comedy. Okay, it's dark because he's been diagnosed with something and he's going to die with it. And he decides rather than suffer with it, he's going to take his own life. And so the, the entire movie is him trying to kill himself to avoid the discomfort of how he fears he may die. And at the end, he, he goes swimming, intending to go out into the ocean and drown. And it's there as he's going down, bobbing down, he's I really want to live. And so he begins to swim back, and it's this weird scene where he's swimming and you hear his thoughts. And so Bert is rambling. And he says something, well, not says something like, he says this. He's bargaining with God. I'll be a better father, a better man. One thing I ask, make me a better swimmer. <laughs> there you go. Now is the important stuff. I promise to obey every one of the Ten Commandments. I shall not kill. I shall not commit adultery. I'll learn every one of the Ten Commandments <laughs> and keep them. It's sort of a comical look at repentance. He's recognizing he needs to change. That he can't live the way he lived before. He can't think the way he thought before because that has brought him to the brink of death in the ocean. Our way of life and the thought system that kind of supports that way of life is to be progressively and persistently left behind. That's part of what it means to seek Him. Instead of seeking our own kingdom, seeking ourselves. But such repentance is not going to be in vain because we have this, they, that God will have compassion, that God will abundantly pardon. And so we have to remember that He's inviting us to the throne of grace. He's not inviting us to the judgment seat. When we're guilty and we hear the call to come, that's what we're so afraid of. It's like when we were children and Dad said, come here. You didn't want to go. He is not saying it that way. He's saying, come here because I'm going to pardon Come here because I'm going to forgive. Come here and be restored to me. Be reconciled to me. That's what he's saying in this invitation. Because remember, there's a feast. You don't invite your, your enemy to the feast unless you intend to poison him. And that's not what God is intending to do in this.
So he's, he's summoning them to the throne of grace because he's going to, dis, to, to have abundant mercy upon these people. And don't we need abundant mercy? It is good that Paul remember, or tells us in Ephesians 2 that God who is rich in mercy because we desperately need it. In this instance, when it talks about His thoughts are not our thoughts, His ways are not our ways, it's not about the intrinsic differences between God's mind and my mind, but I think it's really about the response that He's really connecting it to the mercy. Because when people sin against me, my inclination, my thoughts, my ways are not to forgive them, but to seek retaliation or to reject them. So he's saying, something completely different. My, my intention here is not to destroy you, but to be reconciled with you. That's why it's so important we recognize that he's not like us. Because if we think he is, he'll be as petty as we are. And he's not. All right. Let's wrap this up. Through the ministry of Messiah, we see that God displays His generosity, His faithfulness, and His mercy to people who don't deserve any of them. And these people might readily receive a kind offer, maybe, but they also might try to pay it back. So there's a sense in which Jesus is often the unwanted Messiah because He beckons us to leave our self-sufficiency, to leave our self-will, and to seek Him and delight in Him alone. As I mentioned, this is why the Shorter Catechism question and answer one say that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. He is enjoyable. And He freely offers Himself to us in Christ So, do you delight in Him? Or do you need to turn around so that you can? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Jesus who is a Messiah who is greater than we could ever think, ask, or imagine. That He offers us more than we could ever realize that we want realize that we need and that He offers it to us freely by faith in Him. And so, Father, I pray for those who haven't done that, who don't believe yet, but that they would hear the call this morning, that You would grant them faith, that they would seek You even now because of Jesus, sure of His pardon because of the cross of Christ, And Father, I pray for those of us who have already begun to seek that we would not think that we can go on cruise control. But help us to remember that all of life is meant to be seeking You. All of life is meant to be caught up in the enjoyment of You. And so, refresh us and encourage us us by, by seeing here Your character your generosity, your faithfulness, your mercy. 
that they would encourage us and sustain us as we listen, as we seek, as we call, and Father, as we forsake. For all of us in this room have something to forsake. For all of us still sin. So Father, help us to see those areas that we, we individually need to forsake that we might enjoy more of Christ because we're not filled with the wrong thing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.